Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, attorney and Republican strategist, Jay Carson. We start this week with President Trump's, or, or actually, I guess, Attorney General Jeff Sessions' announcement that the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA as it's generally known, would be discontinued after a six-month delay to enable Congress to act. Now, Sessions argued that the program was both unconstitutional and a bad policy that's resulted in the loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs to American citizens and legal immigrants, which is a claim that's disputed by most economists who've studied the issue. Now, administration officials have also said that this orderly shutdown of the program is far preferable to an immediate shutdown that may have occurred had the states threatening to bring suit against the administration actually followed through and challenged DACA in the courts. Now, President Trump has pretty clearly indicated that he wants Congress to act to preserve the program, and he's even suggested that if Congress doesn't act within that six-month time frame, that he would revisit the issue. He even said, uh, and I quote, Chuck and Nancy, referring to Schumer and Pelosi, the top Democrats in the Senate and the House, would like to see something happen, and so do I. So, so Jay, uh, what do you make of all this? Well, I think I think it's sort of sort of funny in that, uh, again, there was sort of this outrage uh, on the left initially. Uh, Trump is deporting uh, children and so forth. Um, and then here we are talking about he and his his buddies, uh, Chuck and Nancy. Um, I, I think, look, I think it's the right decision um, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, I, I think it is unconstitutional. As the, the related program, uh, DAPA, uh, has been found unconstitutional. This would have likely been struck down uh, for the same reasons uh, in that it is a pre- presidential overreach uh, uh, into Congress, Congress's uh, lawmaking um, uh, powers. And look, I, I think the, a wind down and uh, is, is preferable than a court injunction saying now we've, we've got we've to stop it and the uh, administration has to immediately enforce, although I don't know to what extent that, you know, how vigorous that immediate enforcement would be. But uh, so it, to me, at the end of the day, unconstitutional is unconstitutional. Uh, and I think uh, Sessions and Trump are doing the right thing. This is Congress's decision to make. It should be Congress's decision to make. And uh, uh, I, I think saying, all right, we're going to hold off and give Congress time to do that, I think that's eminently reasonable. Well, you know, let, um, let's talk a little bit about the constitutionality issue, because I feel like in in a lot of the reports on this in, in the mainstream media that I've been reading in the last week, this has really gotten short shrift. There hasn't been a lot of analysis uh, of this issue. It's been more along the lines of, uh, is this fair to the dreamers or not? And that's that's another issue, and it's certainly an important issue. But I, I really feel that we need to focus more on that, uh, at least initially, on that constitutionality issue. So I'm wondering if you could explain why you believe that this is, in what sense, this is unconstitutional. Well, the the uh, Constitution gives the lawmaking power uh, in our country to Congress. Uh, the president can uh, do things uh, in terms of executive agencies through administrative order or policy changes re- relating to the operation of those agencies. Uh, but he can't just unilaterally change the law, nor can he say, uh, here's a law that Congress has passed and I'm just going to choose not to enforce it. And what we have is Congress has uh, a statute, I mean, the Immigration Naturalization Act that says 
uh, look, if, if you're, you know, the paraphrase, I mean, to, to boil it down to its, its, its essence is, uh, if you don't come here legally, then you're, uh, uh, illegal and, and, uh, you can be deported. Um, so these, these, uh, dreamers and, and others, uh, who did not enter the country legally or are not here, uh, pursuant to a, a valid uh, work permit, uh, you know, would typically be subject to deportation, uh, upon arrest. Um, the Obama administration, uh, in, in its later days, and again, this is, if you want to talk about fairness to dreamers and so forth, I mean, uh, President Obama, if this was a priority for him, waited until the final year of, of his uh, eight years to, to uh, get out his pen and pick up his phone uh, and say, well, we're just going to enact a new policy. Uh, we are not going to uh, deport these folks. Uh, and again, on the reason of we think it's unfair. Now, again, in that case, there was there was a bill that had been going through Congress that had stalled. Uh, so again, the idea that Congress was not, uh, you know, had not made its voice known on on this policy was was not questioned. Uh, so I, that's that's the the unconstitutional thing is it's a an executive overreach uh, into the uh, power of Congress and. The president takes an oath to uh, faithfully uh, execute the laws and uh, to preserve and protect the Constitution. Um, and and that's therein lies the problem. Yeah. Well, you know, I've got some thoughts on that uh, as well. But before I before I kind of get into those, I want to thank our first sponsor today, Da Vinci. Now, in today's digital business world, face to face meetings really still do matter. But do you really want to meet an important client or a potential investor in some coffee shop? I mean, sure, it might be convenient, but it doesn't exactly scream professionalism. And so here's the thing. Now you can actually skip the noisy coffee shops and expensive hotel conference rooms you might have been considering as a more professional alternative and simply book a Da Vinci meeting room. Da Vinci provides you instant access to over 5,000 incredibly affordable meeting rooms and well-known office locations in every city, and they make it totally easy. All you have to do is search book and meet and your DaVinci meeting room comes fully staffed and equipped with all the latest tech plus high-speed internet and whether you need just an office for the day or a conference room a boardroom a training space whatever DaVinci has what you need to make your next business meeting a success and Best of all, DaVinci Meeting Room started just $10 an hour. So whether you're an entrepreneur, a startup, and even, you know, Fortune 500 companies can all enhance their images with professional meeting spaces. And that's exactly what DaVinci provides you with. So basically, it's like an Airbnb for meeting rooms. When I was talking to the owners about it, I thought, my God, this is a brilliant idea. I mean, a really smart way to look professional and save a ton of money. So book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And the first hour is on them. That's davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And your first hour is free. Terms and conditions apply. And for details, see davincimeeting.com slash TPG. Where are you holding your next meeting? Okay. So Jay, you know, I've, my, my response to that, and this might surprise some people. And, and I actually think there was someone on, on, on Facebook uh, this week who said, well, I'm sure Mike is, you know, really upset with this, but I actually agree <laughs> with you and with president Trump on this, because I do feel I actually think that there should be a law that that keeps that allows dreamers to stay in this country, because as a lot of people point out, you know, they came into this country through no, you know, they weren't they weren't trying to break the law. They were brought into this country as minors 
by parents, relatives, what have you. And I do think they should be able to stay in the country. But what President Obama effectively did is, is saying basically that, well, this is a case of prosecutorial discretion, but that never seemed right to me because that's more like a case-by-case sort of thing. And it's not like you can exempt an entire class of people from or defer. Exactly. And, and, and also, I mean, the courts <clears throat> did strike down his his similar action on uh, DAPA, which was the, the related yeah. Uh, piece. So yeah, and so you know, and th- we've talked about this more than a few times in the past. Is you can be in favor of a policy and still acknowledge that well, it's not constitutional. And so just because you say, well, this is unconstitutional, doesn't mean that you hate dreamers or hate immigrants. I certainly, you know, don't feel that way. But of course. You know, Jeff Sessions is certainly somebody who I think if he had his druthers would just have all of these folks, you know, thrown out of the country. But that doesn't mean he's wrong about it being unconstitutional. He's certainly wrong or at least overstating the job impact. But but then again, you know, Jeff Sessions has a long history as an immigration. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would agree with you also on that. The job impact piece of it. I didn't really get that. And I thought it was sort of uh, uh, unnecessary. Um you know, again, it's it's sort of uh, if it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. Um, but you know, something else to to, to note is uh, Speaker Ryan and uh, Senator Orrin Hatch have spoken out in favor of doing something again for the Dreamers. Uh, the idea being, as you said, that the equities uh, on this are very much in favor of them, and there there seems to be no no real good reason. Although I I mean, look, if you want, I can make some arguments uh, about why it's it would be a bad policy, you know, altogether. But I don't think they'd be great political arguments. Uh, and uh, and I think and I think look the. This would give, if I'm a a Republican legislator, this gives me an issue to bargain with, to go to the Democrats and and say, all right, here's the deal. We will accept the Dreamers. Here's the path to citizenship. Uh, now let's build a wall. I mean, that's that's the sort of um, you know back and forth that that you then have. And I think, I mean, I, if there's going to be legislation on this, and at this point, I'm sort of skeptical of Congress's ability to do much of anything. But if there is going to be legislation on it, I think that's sort of the that's sort of the form it's going to take. And certainly, we're going to be following this very closely, and we will update as uh, hopefully as as events uh, uh, allow us to. And ideally, there'll be some some good news on that front. All right. Um, Moving on, you know, I I expect that everyone remembers that the best case scenario that was trotted out again and again after Donald Trump was elected is that, well, you know, he's not really a Republican. And because of that, he might actually be in a unique position to kind of reach across the aisle, break through partisan gridlock. And now, obviously, to this point, that hasn't even been remotely true because Donald Trump is largely stuck firm with, you know, his conservative nationalist base. But this week, we saw, I think, the first move by President Trump towards something that could legitimately be called bipartisanship when he cut a deal with congressional Democrats to raise the debt ceiling and finance the government until mid-December, wrapping it into a $15.2 billion Hurricane Harvey aid package. And the deal, which reportedly shocked and infuriated congressional Republicans, was ratified in Congress this week in strong bipartisan votes. It was 316 to 90 in the House and 80 to 17 in the Senate, with all of the no votes in both chambers coming from Republicans. So, Jay, is this actually an instance of Donald Trump being the sort of president millions of Americans hope that he would be? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't get my hopes up. Um there, I mean, there's, there's one, I mean, bipartisanship is, is one thing. 
uh, and and just sort of uh, kind of sticking your own party in the back and, and jumping ship is something else. And, and I think often it's it's in the way that these things are handled, uh, not necessarily as, as the, the final thing. Now, for example, if if uh, President Trump had uh, spoken with uh, uh, Speaker Ryan uh, and uh, uh, Senator McConnell and said, listen, here's where I am. Here's what I'm thinking. Uh, can we sit down and talk? Can we talk with the other Democrats? And, and you work something out together in a bipartisan manner. That's one thing. It, it's something else entirely uh, to to say to your party, sort of in front of the <laughs> leaders of the other party, hey, forget you. I'm going with them. Um, so I, I think that's that's troubling um, in that uh, Trump needs congressional Republicans. Um, uh, again, my my theory, and I, I people will dis- disagree with me on this, uh, but um, wait till we have elections and and we'll see how this all comes out. But my my theory is that Trump needs congressional Republicans more than they need him. Um, the the pivots to uh, Chuck and Nancy. I, again, I think it's great if you want to do a reach across the aisle and let's do something together uh, on hurricane relief um, and and maybe you have to throw him a bone or something to do that. But but again, just the the element of trust that that Trump continues to lose with his own party uh, is a problem for him, because at the end of the day, and I would think he is shrewd enough to find this out because he's dealt with Chuck Schumer and people like Chuck Schumer before. Um, is that they're not going to be with him, um, and uh, he he can't simply you know keep keep attacking his own party, uh, and then expect to get things done. So I think you know look maybe it's nice in the short term. I think it hurts him uh, and prospects of of uh, other legislative accomplishments down the road. Well, you know when you talk about his own party, I mean I think Donald Trump has always been a party of one, uh, essentially. Sure, sure. A- I mean, but but I, and I would agree with you there. But again, he's. He identifies, as the kids say these days, uh, as a Republican, and that was the party that, that nominated him. Sure. You know, I, I should point out that the main reason that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are upset is because not so much with the uh, continuing resolution for the budget, that was going to happen anyway. There was no way that they were anywhere close to being able to get a budget done by the by sure. the October deadline. But but it's the it's the debt ceiling thing. They wanted debt to be ceiling, able yeah. to deal with this and be done with it, get it behind them, because the debt ceiling is a uniquely polarizing issue for Republicans. This is the issue that the Freedom Caucus absolutely loves. They love to to try to hold the, hold the hostage on this, basically, to kind of highlight what they feel is unsustainable federal spending. And, and, you know, this, this really is, is one of the main, I think, cleavages within the, the modern Republican party, at least in Congress, where you have this kind of smaller group of hardcore Freedom Caucus types who give people like Ryan and and especially McConnell all sorts of headaches. They would just like this to go away, I think. But the Freedom Caucus wants to make sure that that doesn't go away. And so now it pushes this issue forward, essentially, or back, actually, sorry. And and the closer it gets to, you know, uh, uh, elections and all that sort of thing, the more trouble it is for uh, the more trouble it is for uh, for Republicans. Exactly. You know, and, and, and the the Republican plan would have been to have a clean vote or not a clean vote, but a separate vote separate from hurricane funding uh, on the debt ceiling. Uh, that would have extended it for 18 yeah. months, which would have put us past uh, exactly. election time and so forth. Exactly. Um, and also, and Republicans also have used the debt ceiling successfully to gain some other concessions on spending. Uh, and I think uh, they were upset that 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 you know piece from their toolboxes had been sort of taken away from them. 
uh, sort of suddenly and uh, you know almost without without consultation. So I and again, this is it's just you know you have disagreements with your own party and factions of your own party, but um, the the uh, the other side's not going to be your friends at the end of the day. So. I, I think Trump is, is, is you know, let, let's put it this way. Um, you know, what what does uh, if if things should it someday come to a uh, impeachment trial, um, uh, Trump will be tried by uh, Senator McConnell uh, and and the uh, senators there. Um, that's his best case scenario. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I think he 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 shoots himself in the foot uh, by how he does this, not not because there's some bipartisan outreach. Uh, but by how it's being conducted. Sure. And like a lot of people kind of saying that uh, that John McCain may be in some small part cast the deciding vote against uh, basically getting rid of large parts of Obamacare, maybe because of their. Yeah. And so. So, yeah. But, you know, um, I also want to mention that uh, that whole idea of taking away that tool from the Freedom Caucus, there's actually some talk about. Uh, doing that on a permanent basis with this. I mean, that idea that you have to vote every year to extend the debt ceiling. All I mean, all the debt ceiling is, is just saying that, well, we will actually not default on our debt. We will, we will pay up on our obligations that we have incurred. And of course, we're going to do that. The result of not doing that is catastrophic. And a number of folks have suggested, a lot of Democrats, and there are some even some moderate Republicans who say, you know, maybe what we should do is just have this increase be automatic, do away with these yearly difficult votes. And in fact, President Trump suggested he might be in favor of signing legislation like that. And I think that would be a good thing, though the Freedom Caucus certainly would never go for it. Right. Uh, nor would I, to the extent that anyone's asking me. Oh, yeah. Um, why is that? Why, why is <laughs> no, that? I, again, I mean, it's sort of the uh, we're going to give you a uh, uh, no limit on your credit card. And I, I think the debt ceiling, again, the the issue that uh, it, it you know can be apocalyptic if you are somehow going to to not be able to uh, to borrow more to make to make the payment, but um, it, it, there, I think there needs to be some sort of hedge on on or, or, or curb on on spending at some point. Well, yeah, I, l- let me just say this though. I, I think the analogy is flawed because it's not like giving you no limit on your credit card. What it is is you're spending. I mean, if you want to, let's use the credit card analogy. Congress is spending, maxing out its credit card, and then it's saying, well, should we pay the bill that comes due? Now, the way that the way to put in the limit is on that first part to limit the spending. But it, you can't say, well, you know, we. We really shouldn't be spending this much, so we're going to default on our obligations that we have incurred. That's just that's just ridiculous, and that's why I think that this is this is the kind of vote that's just again kind of ridiculous. And of course, we are not going to default on our obligations. That's just not going to happen. And holding this kind of issue, using this as kind of a hostage-taking thing, I think is it just incredibly irresponsible. Well, the, the farther you are from the debt ceiling, uh, the less of a problem it becomes. And, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head right there that we have, in, a se- in essence, maxed out the credit card. Uh, and now we're sort of arguing over the, the terms of the, the minimum payments. Um, so, no, I, look, I, regardless of uh, the final policy of it, uh, I, I'm, I would be opposed to just an automatic ever forever renewal. If you want to make it uh, re-renew it every Every five years or something like that, uh, you know that that takes away some of the the hostage taking concerns uh, as opposed to doing it yearly. Uh, but regardless, we're not there yet, and uh, if that's going to happen, it ought to be done in consultation with uh, with congressional leaders. Okay, well, you know, before I move on, we want to thank our second sponsor today, and that is SeatGeek, a great low cost, super convenient way to buy tickets for live events. 
With SeatGeek, you can find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed. It only takes a few taps on the app or a few clicks if you access it through their website, SeatGeek.com. So, Jay, have you ever heard of uh, the Mavericks? No, I haven't. Well, this is like, I, I love the Mavericks. There's this kind of great mashup of uh, like Tex-Mex, rockabilly, country, pop, and I don't know, probably like one or two other styles that I'm, I'm not thinking of right now. I mean, they're completely distinctive. I love them. And I've never seen them live. And it was only thanks to SeatGeek. Uh, I pulled up that, pulled up the app and I found out they're coming to town. Um, and so that's, that's what I like about SeatGeek. And plus with SeatGeek, you can get updates on whatever, you know, venues, events, performers you want to keep track of. So now for instance, I won't ever have to worry about missing the Mavericks or the old 97s or any of my favorite groups again. And you can even connect it up with Spotify. You music library and Facebook to get notifications about artists you listen to or follow. Though if you're not a notification person, you can turn it off really easily. And when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and time of the event on your calendar if you want. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. And you can get that on the app or at SeatGeek.com. Okay. So Jay, you know, moving on, our next story, I think we should talk about is North Korea. Um, Never good, right? The situation seems to keep on deteriorating. I mean, this week, uh, the rogue state detonated its sixth nuclear bomb and one that far surpassed the destructive power of its previous nuclear tests. The Trump administration responded by saying that even the threat to use such a device against the United States or its allies will be met with a massive military response. And in response to the test, the administration urged China to cut off fuel supplies to North Korea and something the U.S. would really like to be part of a U.N. Security Council resolution, though China, which provides nearly all of North Korea's imported energy and accounts for somewhere around 80% or more of North Korea's trade, I think is highly unlikely to go along with this. Now, President Trump has suggested that the U.S. might want to consider cutting off all trade with any country that does business with North Korea. And that, of course, would be devastating to the Chinese economy as well as to the U.S. economy. And, you know, Jay, in thinking about this, now, President Trump has said that he will not allow North Korea to develop the means to strike the mainland U.S. with nuclear weapons. And to me, that's a threat that sounds an awful like that red line statement that President Obama made about Syria and chemical weapons use. And I'm wondering, do you think President Trump's threat is just as empty? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I, I, I think there's a, because again, there's there's a, a difference, um, not really a difference of degree, but a difference of, of kind altogether uh, between uh, warning a dictator against using chemical weapons against his own people uh, in a country on the other side of the world and dealing with a madman uh, who has, uh, you know, the, the ability to uh, perhaps kill millions of Americans. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, um, again, you can be sort of a little flip about whether you honor red lines and so forth and you suffer the consequences there. But I, I think this, this really is a, a red line uh, and that, that we can't allow him to, uh, him being uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, to develop a, a weapon that can even get get close. I mean, there have been people who have written about the now with this type of uh, what we believe to be hydrogen bomb uh, that that he's he's detonated. Uh, you have the the possibility of uh, uh, EMP attacks uh, where he you know launches something up into the atmosphere, uh, detonates it, and you knock out power grids and so forth. 
Um, uh, that that's again, that's simply something I don't, I think that, that can't stand. Uh, and if it, if it eventually requires military, uh, intervention and it may well, um, I think so, that's something that the United States would fall through with, particularly this president. I think so we're saying, by God, if it comes to it, we're willing to sacrifice millions of South Korean lives for this. I mean, isn't that, that's, well, that's and, the uh, calculus. No, I mean, I, I if, if I'm being a completely, uh, look, if if you are the if if you are the president of the United States, uh, and and the choice is uh, the risk of of uh, hundreds of thousands, I don't know if it'll be millions of uh, of South Koreans uh, or millions of Americans. Uh, what what choice do you make? Well, just to be clear, it's not exactly the choice. The choice is hundreds of thousands of South Koreans for the possibility of millions or hundreds of thousands of American lives at some point in the future, if if North Korea decided to go out in a blaze of glory and and basically guarantee its destruction by targeting the mainland United States. See, that's the calculus to me. And that's why I think that for all the bluster, for all the rhetoric, we're not going to end up doing anything. China's not going to end up acting because we cannot impose enough pain on them without pay, imposing too much pain on ourselves to get them to act. And so what's going to happen is a, is, a, is a year, two years down the line, China's, or, sorry, North Korea is going to have this capability. We're not going to like it, and there's not going to be anything we're going to be able to do about it. I'm not crazy about that, but that's, well, that uh, seems to me to be the, the case. Uh, again, it's always, and I'm, I'm not directing this to you specifically, but, but those on the left who... Uh, always get overly exercised about, uh, you know, some guy out in Montana with uh, an AK-47 or an assault rifle uh, that, that uh, you know, we must take action against against him because he's a threat, uh, but don't see the threat in a seriously deranged um, uh, lunatic with, uh, you know, <laughs> nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles. And to me, again, it, it's not even so much the, the danger. You have two dangers, one being uh, a Kim Jong-un uh, attack, uh, and and he's not a rational actor, uh, or him simply selling a device to someone else uh, in the, who, who would act uh, in the interest of destabilizing the United States. And I think that's and and the the other the message uh, that also sends is uh, if uh, if Kim can have nuclear weapons, then everyone can have nuclear weapons. And we have to decide from a, a policy sense, is that a world we can live in uh, or, or not? And uh, my sense is that's that's not a world we'd want to live in. Well, it's not that. a world I want to live in. But I think, number one, that I completely disagree with the assessment of him as being a deranged lunatic. I think he's a very rational actor. You know, you saw what happened to he saw what happened to Gaddafi, Gaddafi after he gave up his nuclear ambitions and he realizes that this is the one way to guarantee his his survival i think he's uh he's a very smart strategic actor i think he's an evil uh he's an evil man but uh i think he's not at all irrational and and i think that eventually then the world we're going to live in in 10 20 years is where there are you know a number of other states who maybe have nuclear weapons and and the costs of the there's just not a whole lot we can do i don't like it I certainly don't like it, and I certainly understand the nature of the threat, but I just see that as the world we're going to live in and the, 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 the consequences of trying to stop that from happening. It's like trying to keep the, the flood tides back, and it's just not going to happen, unfortunately. So that's my assessment. But anyway, we'll, we'll see. All right. So, um, It'll be, well, yeah, we'll talk about this next week or the week after. I'm yeah, sure. at some, yeah. At some point, sure. It's not like North Korea is going to stop. That's for sure. So, you know, there's a new development regarding president Trump's ban on travelers to the U S from 
six predominantly Muslim countries. As you might recall, in June, the Supreme Court allowed parts of the ban to proceed while the case was being litigated, though the court said that the administration had to let in those who had a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States without specifying what exactly that constituted. And now, the administration decided that in terms of family relations, only parents, children, siblings, and in-laws counted, and that a pre-existing relationship with the resettlement agency didn't count. Now, in July, a federal judge in Hawaii ruled against this interpretation, and this week, the Ninth Circuit upheld the ruling, arguing that the government didn't offer a persuasive explanation for why relationships with grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, and cousins shouldn't count. And the appellate court also upheld the lower court's ruling that a relationship with a resettlement agency should constitute a bona fide relationship. Now, this fall, the Supreme Court will hear arguments concerning the underlying case and will rule on whether or not President Trump's order should stand or if it constitutes an unconstitutional discrimination against Muslims, as opponents and a number of previous lower court rulings have argued. So, Jay, uh, what are your thoughts on this latest latest development, this ruling? Well, it's sort of what you expect from the Ninth Circuit. Um, uh, the Ninth Circuit, for those who follow this, these things, uh, is the most uh, far left uh, of these federal circuit courts. Um, and they're also the most frequently overruled uh, yeah, but, circuit by the Supreme Court but, and but, have been but, for decades now. But let's talk um, about the substance and let's, let's, I know, I know how you people on the right love denigrating the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circus, all that kind of thing. But let's focus on what they actually said as opposed to taking pot shots at what I think is a great circuit well, court. That was but, just my intro. That okay. was then. <laughs> all right. I'm, fair enough. I'm a little uh, defensive no, about I the think, Ninth Circuit. Look, maybe, I, think, I, don't I know. think the Ninth Circuit gets it wrong. Uh, well, let's, let's put it this way. The, the Supreme Court had said uh, a close familial relationship uh, is, is something that is a bona fide relationship. And the Trump administration looked to uh, one uh, language in the Immigration Naturalization Act that uh, defines that as a, a uh, you know, again, mother, father, uh, mother-in-law, you know, direct parent, uh, but does not include, for example, grandparents, cousins, uh, brothers and sisters-in-law. Um, the district court in Hawaii looked to another provision of the INA, that gives a broader um, example of, of close family. Um, and, you know, really to, to me, um, I, I think maybe, maybe that part stands up that look close family. I don't know. Can it be because grandparents again, close familiar relationship? I mean, I don't know how close are you with your cousins? Well, grandparents, um, I suppose it all depends, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, which is why you could argue that the court should have, the, the Supreme court should have been a little more specific. And I think that's a, reasonable thing to, to say. They they were too vague, I think. Sure. Uh, but is is Trump, is the Trump administration uh, uh, interpretation of that uh, unreasonable? Uh, and I would say, yeah, pro probably not. Now, again, if, if you want to get into the, the weeds of, uh, you know, are you closer to your mother-in-law than you are to your grandparents and, and so forth? Uh, again, that's, that's something that is a better question to be sorted out. Uh, based on the individual litigants at the uh, the lower court level, um, the second piece of it uh, with the refugee resettlement uh, centers, I, I do think the Supreme Court will uh, will smack that down. Uh, in that the I think the the Ninth Circuit goes astray when it it sort of equates these these centers and says, okay, well, first of all, they have standing because uh, they could have some sort of concrete uh, loss. Uh, and well, then they 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 sort of take the next logical jump and saying, well, they're also sort of um, uh, a stand-in, if you will, for the the refugee or the immigrant, and and I, I just I just don't see that that connection. 
um, uh, you know, there, these resettlement centers, they essentially make agreements with the federal government and, and sign agreements saying we will accept uh, these these refugees. Um, and they do vetting I, I and that kind I of thing. I don't know so that forth. that is the kind of bona fide relationship that gets you over the hump of, uh, therefore, you can't have a, a 90 day moratorium on on them coming over. So um, to the extent that these issues aren't going to be already moot when the Supreme Court uh, hears all this, uh, I would say that the. Uh, the court maybe maybe lets the uh, the broader definition of family uh, stand, but uh, knocks out the uh, the piece about uh, you have a bona fide relationship because of relationship with the resettlement center. Right. So, well, what do you think about the just the underlying issue? I mean, uh, obviously, a number of lower federal courts have said that the uh, uh, the the impetus for this policy was was animus, and if that's the case, animus is never a legitimate governmental interest, and so therefore that's. that's that's uh, that, that that's uh, sort of fails the constitutionality test, and they've been they based that in part on the remarks that President Trump and a number of his top officials made, uh, especially during the campaign. And uh, uh, you know, so if the court if the court would rule that, then all this all this other stuff would obviously go away. Though my sense is, is especially given that uh, now you know Donald Trump has a nominee on the court and Judge Gorsuch, that uh, probably this the, the most likely outcome would be a five to four ruling in favor of the administration on this. Well, you know, I don't even know that the the court would get if you look back to the Supreme Court's decision on the the injunction. Uh, which was to stay the ban, uh, you know, again, it was it was essentially nine nothing uh, with no one uh, raising that issue of uh, of animus that this is somehow improper because of that. Um, so I, I, I don't see, uh, again, the the underlying case law to try to pull this this in to say, a, uh, uh, you know, a president's statements during a campaign can somehow uh, invalidate his or, or, or remove his powers uh, in national security issues uh, areas. I, I just don't see the court going there. Um, and, and I think a lot of this largely may be, be knocked out as moot by the time we get there. Um, and, and, and as well, it should, again, this was a, uh, you know, three month moratorium, uh, and we are now in uh, month, uh, nine <laughs> of arguing over it. Um, so I, I, you know, again, I, I don't see the court going that far. I think if they were going to do that, they would have would have done that already. Um, and, and I, I just, uh, again, all that evidence was in the record and was all presented to them. Uh, they chose not to move on it. So, but I, I think you're right. I think regardless, I think it it it, it stands. But yeah, I I think I'm a little more um, uh, I'm a little more confident that three or, or four justices will actually will actually uh, accept the animus argument maybe not but but uh, we, we certainly will see now the, the court course is going to hear it in the fall but that means it's going to be a, a while after that before they actually issue a ruling on that case but we'll certainly be following would, would, that. let's let's again this would be a hypothetical and, and um, a bad hypothetical with that because I'm, I'm kind of mixing my my countries but you know in in his uh, before he was prime minister Winston Churchill was extremely uh, concerned about the Nazi menace and spoke about it in in pretty glaring terms uh, over and over again, uh, saying, um, uh, you know, this is a problem that has to be dealt with. They're not abiding by the treaty, so forth. Um, would assuming assuming Winston Churchill had been an American president, uh, uh, a court have said, well, your your actions now uh, against that regime um, are illegitimate because they were motivated by some improper animus. Now, again, I, it's 
It's a bad analogy because you can say, well, the, the Nazis aren't, it wasn't a religion, uh, uh, but nor is, nor is, uh, are these, these countries a religion themselves. Um, but, but again, the idea that you would, you would take, uh, statements and you sort of get inside someone's head and then say, okay, um, you can't, uh, you can't wage this war. You can't take this action. You can't take these defensive steps because we think you're doing it for bad reasons, uh, would be judicial micromanagement of the presidency and national security. I, I don't think the court would ever go that far. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let that I'm gonna let that stand without comment, and we'll see what All listeners right. have right. to say about that. All right, um, it's time for what we're reading, where we step back from the crazy pace of the news cycle and talk about some more in-depth, thoughtful things that we're reading or listening to or watching. You know, Jay, recently I started reading a book called Grand Hotel Abyss, and in it, the, the author guy wrote it, uh, Stuart Jeffries. He takes a look at the lives of the main figures of something called the Frankfurt School, which is sort of a neo-Marxist movement that began in the 19, 1920s Germany. Uh, it was kind of founded by a bunch of uh, uh, upper-class German Jews who, you know, that's not a really good time to found a movement, especially in Germany. But anyway, uh, and sort of their critiques of early to mid-20th century capitalism, including uh, their thoughts on the culture industry, popular entertainment, and uh, rampant consumerism. And, and Jeffries takes a look at sort of what they believed and how it applies to our 20th century, 21st, sorry, century society. And uh, uh, one of the reviews called it a rich, intellectually meaty history. And well, I'm only about a quarter of the way through. It's my kind of daily uh, dinner reading book. So it's going to take me a while to finish. I definitely agree with that. It's fascinating stuff. And I agree. I found myself agreeing with a lot of what these, what these guys are saying in their critique of uh, uh, popular culture, consumerism, capitalism, that sort of thing. So, so that's my that's what I'm reading these days. Okay, that's that's interesting. My my uh, pick, and this is going to be a little weird, uh, but this is this is old school. Uh, this is again going back to um, you know as a as a conservative, uh, you know I, I think it's it's important to look at what are we seeking to conserve, and I'm always sort of in in search of the sort of the soul of America, uh, if you will. So I've gone back and I've been rereading essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, now Emerson is is someone who I read in high school and a little bit in college, uh, and again it's I hadn't really picked it up since then. Um, but uh, his his essay, uh, Self Reliance, uh, The Oversoul, uh, Poetry, all of these, and again it's not necessarily an easy lift, but um, I, I think it's it's worth looking at some of this this intellectual history uh, of of our country and and the ideas that Emerson puts out that the kind of uh, are, are part of our national fabric even though we, we don't even know it anymore um, so that's that's my my pick and again you can you can get Emerson's essays like pretty easy and cheap on on uh, Kindle and and uh, you can read one or two of them uh, uh, you know one a night or something like that um, but if nothing else even just for the writing and the vocabulary uh, uh, it, it it brings you back to sort of a different age and sort of at a, a higher level than what our discourse is now. And and it also makes makes you wonder, I think it'd be a fascinating question of if uh, Emerson were, were alive today, what what he would think, where he would be. Uh, he was he was very much, you know, undoubtedly a liberal for his time, uh, but he was also very much an individualist. Uh, so I, I think that that interests me, that sort of iconoclastic sort of uh, uh, you know, defies categorization, uh, but, but everyone can sort of find something in him. So, uh, that's my, my sort of, again, 
old school uh, uh, Soul of America kind of kind of reading for this week. I think it's an excellent choice. All right. Well, on that note, we will close. That's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors, Da Vinci. Book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG and the first hour is on them. And SeatGeek, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase by downloading the SeatGeek app or going to seatgeek.com and entering promo code politicsguy. You know, listener support is a huge help to us and we really do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.